Welcome to the pulpit ministry of Christ Community Church in South Florida, aiming to make, mature, and multiply disciples by preaching and teaching God's Word based on the sufficiency of Scripture. And now, let's join Pastor Bernie Diaz for the message. It is a super day. Um, It's an important day. May have been Billy Graham, I think, who once said, quote, a good father is one of the most unsung, unpraised, unnoticed, and yet one of the most valuable assets in our society, end quote. And I know today we're going to do a good job of proving that quote to be untrue because fathers in America are being honored today, as many should be. And what is also true is this axiom that says this, If you may have not have heard a certain version of it before, so goes the father, so goes the home and the family, so goes the family, so goes the church, so goes the church, so goes the community, so goes the community, so goes the country. I think that's true. And today, we're going to kind of bring that together in a different way. We're going to continue our series, A Theology of the Body, this summer. By making the argument from Scripture that so goes our body, so goes our faith, says a lot about us today, and the fathers in particular. Take notice. After we asked the question, what does it mean to be human, last time in opening the series, we addressed God's creation mandate for us in terms of gender and so forth, and and we thought on Father's Day today, we would deal with questions about how we should treat our bodies you don't hear that talked about too often in church, I don't think, from a pulpit. What does, what does God have to do with our bodies? Does he even care about what we do with our bodies after we're born? Right? So dads, listen up. All of us, really, because this topic speaks to issues like nutrition, fitness, aging, sexuality, etc. So in other words, I ask... Does God's word reveal his will for us with what we are to do with our bodies? I would say it does. He gives us a physical body to manage or steward. Would be the kind of the biblical word in English we use. Steward this gift of our bodies, like every other gift he gives us, whether it be time or talents, treasure. Body's no different. So to help us with this, we're going to turn to Paul's first letter to the Corinthian church, very practical letter, very relevant to our times, because he's dealing with questions and controversies from a church that was doing life in a very pagan, idolatrous world, similar to our own. Corinth was in a post-Judaic world. They hadn't been exposed very long to the God of the Scriptures and the law. Christianity was kind of new on the scene, mid-first century at this point. And these dear people are coming to Christ and they're wondering, what do we do about our old selves, our old way of thinking? What do we do about sin? What do we do about sinners that are in the church? And so they're asking in these letters going back and forth to Paul, can we sue each other as Christians? Can we take a Christian to court? Or what about eating foods that have been offered to idols, former idols? What about marriage and divorce? What are the ground rules now there? And we touched on that recently when we were visiting this letter to elaborate on what Jesus had taught in the Gospel of Mark and the others. Here in this text, sandwiched between warnings on sexual immorality 
And marriage is actually a passage that deals with the body. And we learn two things from these two verses that's going to build a foundation for us to apply to all these other questions and issues. The two main points of this text is that God is the ultimate owner of our bodies, and as a result, he has made an ultimate purpose for our bodies. And once you get that straight, really, everything should flow from there. So let's look at them one at a time. Our ultimate owner is who, duh, verse 19, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. And it's almost a satirical, kind of rhetorical question Paul's asking them. It's like, don't you realize or did you forget who made you, who owns your body, right? Who has rights over it? Because God not only gave you life and breath through the birth process physically, if you're a Christian, he gave you everlasting life and the spirit in the new birth process, salvation. It's like the modern translation puts it, you do not belong to yourself. And God's people always and should always know who we belong to. It's just a fundamental truth. Psalm 24.1 says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. And, go even further, prophet Isaiah was more direct in a way when he quotes God speaking to Israel in Isaiah 43, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, you are mine. Mankind struggles with that, though, right? You're not the boss of me. You ever heard someone say that, a child responding like that to an authority? You know, it's the child's attempt to assert. I mean, not that our children would ever do that. But, you know, we're fighting for independence here, war of independence every day. No matter what our age is, we we chafe a little bit when someone tells us what to do, including dads. And after all, because the person telling us to do something might ask us to do something we don't want to do or put us in a situation we don't want to be in. And that's a problem if you want to fear God and trust God. right? We, we kind of prefer to dig in and say, you ain't the boss of me. We should know better. In fact, Jesus had talked about this concept of the temple of our bodies back in John 2 when he referred to his own resurrection body as the new temple. Okay? In fact, the original Greek word that's translated as temple here is a holy, sacred place. You ever thought of your body that way before? A holy, sacred place? And this is key. The relationship between the spirit of God and your body is an essential part of your faith. Because Paul wrote in Romans 8, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're not a Christian. I don't think that should be news to most of us, but it is a truth. No Holy Spirit, no Christian. And the truth is, points to the reason why the Christian abstains or flees or runs from, as an example, sexual immorality. Jump back to verse 15 in this text, and you'll see where Paul writes, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? It's like the arms and legs of Christ. Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is written, the two will become one flesh. 
I don't have to elaborate on that. I think you know where this is going. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. And then we get the therefore, verse 18, flee, run from sexual immorality. Every other person, every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Wow, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You're not your own. Folks, when you commit an act of sexual immorality, a lot of us don't think of it this way. You're bringing Jesus along for the ride. He's there. He's part of that act. That's what this is saying. So, Christian, God made you. God saved you. And the fact that our bodies are not our own means that you can't do with them whatever you feel like. They don't belong to you, ultimately. Your body is not yours to do damage to or destroy. So what's the implication of that? That goes to the second point, the next verse, which is our ultimate purpose. For, therefore, because, Paul's writing, you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body or honor God with your body. It's another way of saying it. So that first phrase there continues the ownership idea of verse 19. It's like a purpose clause. It's a because. Verse 20 is explaining verse 19. Telling the disciples of Christ that God has new and greater ownership of your body because a great price was paid for it. What, what price are we talking about? We're talking about the blood of Jesus Christ. In Acts 20, Paul said that Christ purchased the church, bought the church, that's you, with his blood. And Peter, in his first letter, calls it the precious blood of Christ that purchased your salvation. What does that mean? What are the analogies about? How did the blood of Jesus purchase your redemption? Well, the blood of Jesus refers to his death. That's just a metaphor, right? In fact, we talked about it this way in our memory verse from Mark chapter 10 recently, that great memory verse we worked on, that Mark 10, 45, Jesus gave his life as a ransom for many. Remember that? Jesus died the death that you deserve to die on the cross. He paid that ransom to free you, that penalty, the purchase price. He made the payment that you should have but didn't have to with your body and soul for your sins. Jesus did it as a substitute in your place. That, I would suggest, is the greatest news in the history of this planet. He made an atonement, a sacrifice to forgive you of your sins. That payment freed you, rescued you from the judgment of hell that is to come. That's how he bought you. That's how he owns you if you want to know. Which leads me to ask, hey, if pagans like the Corinthians, they would give themselves to idols and a god which was really no god at all, didn't exist, and people do that today, how much more should we, who are bought with the price of the blood of Christ, give our bodies to him who is our rightful owner? Because as Romans 12 tells us, you worship God, you honor him with your body as a sacrifice, right? Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is our spiritual worship. So get that. We actually worship and live for God with our bodies. Romans 14 puts it this way. For none of us lives to himself, 
and none of us dies to himself. That means we're God's. He's in charge. So our job is to trust him, live for him. But what does it mean to glorify God with your body? That's the nuts and bolts of this. And first, you have to be reminded of what it means to glorify God, period, which the Bible tells us to do with everything we do or say 24-7. You should be able to now repeat with me from the same letter, 1 Corinthians 10.31, which says, whether we eat or drink, whatever we do, do to the glory of God. So that's just an example out of many that Paul says, you can actually glorify God at breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Yeah, really? Yeah, well, we can watch what we eat. This body's been given to us as a steward, for us to steward for his glory. As one example, we can honor, give thanks for what we're consuming. That honors and glorifies God. So to glorify God, and really a short answer is, and we say it a lot here, make much of God. Mirror him. That is what it means to honor him with all you say or do. In fact, the Greek word for glorify is the root word that we get for praising and worship. As I mentioned, worship. We did that with our singing today. You all sound great today, by the way. But you also worship God when you leave here, when you go to work, and when you're at school during school time. So literally, the original language gives the idea of glorifying. It is to cause the dignity and worth of some person to become manifest, to be seen and acknowledged. That's what it means to magnify, to, magnify, to glorify. There's many different ways to do that. I'm not going to give you an all-inclusive list, but I am going to help you with, uh, we talk about our bodies. I'm going to mention four ways we glorify God. Four ways we glorify God with our bodies. We're going to talk about doing it in intimacy, in work, in health care, in love, in death. Let's start with intimacy. I know the dads may be paying attention now. We're going to be practical. The context of this passage is sexual immorality. So how do you glorify God with your body that way? And it's a very simple compound word with a little hyphen in between. Self-control. Self-control. I talk about that all the time. We talk about issues of sexuality with people. I've had this conversation with my kids. Well, they can't help but do that. They can't help it. You know, I feel like i got to do that. Well, we're not animals. We're reasonable creatures. We're image bearers. We can exercise self-control. That's one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit, by the way. It's one of the ways you know you're a Christian. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. Right? To have self-control means to discipline yourself, including your mind, including your body. It's the ability to say yes to what you should say yes to, no to what you should say no to. Or in other words, it's the discipline of regulating your life, your behavior, under the authority, the ultimate control, and the authority of God's will and spirit in line with his word. If you're doing that, by the way, you're being led by or filled with the Holy Spirit. Galatians 5.16, where Paul wrote, but I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. If you're Spirit-led, you're Spirit-filled, you're going to be much less likely to lose self-control. Because Spirit's the power source to self-control, which enables you then to glorify God with your body. 
We're not talking legalism here, by the way. Let me just get that out in the open. We're not talking about superficial rules or you being a monk, monasticism, you're abusing your body to bring it under control. No. It's being by the ordinary means of grace, the word, prayer, the local church body. You're just being led by the Spirit. And that'll be seen practically in your self-control. We've said often, God created us to enjoy and express sexuality, folks, for your body, but only in the context of one man, one woman, marriage for a lifetime. That's the restriction. Anything else is out of bounds. As John MacArthur said, the smartest way to handle sexual sin is to run from it. You can't have a problem with a sexual sin if you are not around it. End quote. Give you an example of how to not to. The negative, how not to, King David. He was a man after God's own heart, but he struggled with the flesh as we did. He had no business being a peeping David and taking a look-see at Bathsheba with her dress after bathing on the roof of that house because David got carried away with lust. So much so, he conspired to kill her husband on the front lines of a battle so he could be with her and then took her to be a wife. That's not how you deal with temptation. How do you do it? Like Joseph did, right? Potiphar had the hots for him. It's Potiphar's wife. That would be a whole other issue. And I think we talked about that in part one. I did not know that Potiphar was LGBTQ. Wild, wacky stuff, but that's for another time. But listen to what Joseph did do with Potiphar's wife. Oh, Lord's going to get me for that one. <laughs> Genesis 39, 12 says, She caught him, Potiphar's wife, by his garment, saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. He took off. He didn't try to, like, say, Oh, but maybe how do we work this out? He took off. That's self-control. How else can you glorify God in your body and work? Genesis 2.8 says, And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. I could preach an entire sermon about the fact that God intended, we have before, I think, he made us to work, even before the fall into sin, which makes it hard Harder, our work is hard as the result of that fall and sin because it's part of the curse of this planet. But Adam and Genesis 2 adds that his helper Eve, who was given to him by God, they were meant to work, to produce as a means of being fruitful, multiplying, having dominion or authority over the world. We were meant to work it and keep it for God's glory. And that's why we honor today so many of our earthly fathers who did that and just do that each and every day in particular. But work, work is our role in God's provision for us too. And wisdom from the word teaches us that we are blessed by work and we're not to take shortcuts. Taking shortcuts in life are foolish when we're talking about work. Proverbs 13, 4 says so. The soul of the sluggard, sluggard's an old English word for lazy person, the soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing, while the soul of the diligent, the consistent worker, is richly supplied. 
And then verse 11 adds, wealth gained hastily. What is wealth gained hastily? I don't know. The lotto? Maybe? Quick fix? Wealth gained hastily will dwindle, but whoever gathers little by little will increase it, their wealth. Amen to that. Proverb after proverb reminds us that real men, talking now Father's Day, Christian men, fathers in particular, we're not lazy. We're not sluggards, Proverbs 6. We're go-getters. We work to eat and much, and we work to make much of God. Another Proverbs talks about that, Proverbs chapter 28, if you're taking note, just as a reference in verse 19. Whoever works his land will have plenty of bread, but he who follows worthless pursuits will have plenty of poverty. That means don't waste time, guys. There is much work to be done. Ultimately, we work, and we work well for the Lord. That's something else I want you to see from a text that's in Colossians chapter 3. A lot of people, have you noticed, they say they're Christians and they're working, and as soon as the boss comes up and walks by, they get real busy. They're doing busy work. And the boss leaves the room, and they're taking a snooze, or they get out their phone or whatever. Paul says this about that, Colossians 3, verse 22. Bond servants, and in this context today, that would be more like an employee. Obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. What does that mean? At the end of the day, acknowledge the fact the Lord's your boss. With your bodies, you work for an audience of one. Next way we, besides intimacy and work, that we can glorify God with our bodies is in love. Say, well, didn't you talk about intimacy already? That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about the command to love people. Our neighbors is ourselves. That necessitates the body, necessitates effort. You know, the agape love of God, which is sacrificial and unconditional, is to share with others. That word for love from the original Greek language of the New Testament, agape, which you're very familiar with, is a verb. It's an action word. It's what you do. You meet needs. A prime indication of that would be the Lord on that Thursday night of the Passion Week. Lord's Supper. He does the foot washing. He's demonstrating something to his apostles, to his disciples. And it says in John 13, 14, If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. He's not talking about this ritual of washing feet. That was a very menial job for a house servant to do. The point is, do whatever needs to be done to meet a need in love for someone. Because in verse 15, he says, For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. And then verse 35, at the end of that passage, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So you see the foot washing, stuff like that demonstrates love. Another way we know that, the way it's pictured really well, you're familiar with the Good Samaritan story. We won't take time to develop that. You know it well. A Samaritan comes down the road, the two religious guys blew off the man beaten in the ditch, 
The Good Samaritan picks him up on his shoulders, puts him on his mule, takes him to an inn, pays for everything. Oh, he poured oil, bound up his wounds, by the way. And on top of that, he's got to go back to work, and the guy says, whatever he needs, here's my Amex card, uh, and whatever else he needs, put it on my account. And Jesus said, that's what love is. That's what it looks like. Okay, that's why that story is so revered. And I'll tell you, when I look at a man to qualify him to marry my daughters, like this handsome guy right in front of me, or I would counsel any one of you with children at home, you want to prepare the males, the men in your household, who would be biblically to be three things along these lines. To be the pastor, to be the provider, the worker, or the protector and the protector of their home. Spiritually, they're going to be the leaders. They should be the leaders of their home, what the Puritans called their little church. They help protect the wife and the children. Spiritually from false teaching, by the way, as well as physically. Physically, as stewards of their homes and bodies, dads have to be ready to make the ultimate sacrifice of love, which is to die for your family. That's what masculine biblical men, dads, do. Just like Jesus in the example Paul gave us in Ephesians 5. Jesus died for the church, gave his body for it, literally. You will do that, Dad, for the good of your family. That means you'll take the bullet. You'll step in front of the car. Whatever it takes to protect your family. That's what fathers do. Godly fathers do. You're not an avenger for them. You're a guardian for them. There's a difference. So that's a right thing to do. That's loving, and it's God-glorifying. Next up in health care. You glorify God in healthcare. At least a half dozen times, Paul tells Christians, be ready for and devote yourselves to good works. You can't do good works. You can't serve the Lord as he intends for you to if you're not healthy enough to do so, if your body isn't in good enough shape to. So think, are there barriers, are there obstacles that you can remove in faith that keep you from serving the Lord? Because you not only serve the Lord with your heads, you serve him with your hands and your feet. You have to be able to move and work, vocation in the mission field. I've learned that the last two years, serving as a missionary for Love Life South Florida, because we prayer walk half a mile and do all kinds of stuff outdoors for 40 Saturdays in a row. And I'm telling you, it makes it a lot easier to do that ministry when you're in a reasonably decent condition of health. So ask yourself, everybody. Not just dads, but am I ready, am I ready and willing to make use of this body God gave me? Or do I do what the world does with the body, oftentimes, keep it on the shelf, use it as little as humanely possible? Am I fruitful or am I a couch potato? Which is real easy to be today if you're not careful because you constantly have these things in your hands or are binge-watching. TV, or doing nothing but video games. If you're doing all that, it makes it really hard, harder to practice health care. The Bible knows this real well, folks. That's why Psalm 90 says, listen to this. This is written centuries ago. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and then we fly away. 
That's accurate, isn't it? A lifespan? Don't waste your life. And I mean physically as well. If you're going to do something, do it well for God's glory, and it helps if you're reasonably healthy. The Bible is definitely pro-health. It encourages us to take care of our bodies like the fuel that we put in it. Both gas and food are very expensive today, I know. The analogy works both ways. But we are to take care of our bodies and keep them in good enough shape because it's valuable to God. You know, and, and, and we'll address something else that's not talked about a lot. But it is a big sin in Western civilization, and that's gluttony. The medieval church used to talk about gluttony as one of the seven deadly sins way back then. And it's a subtle, often overlooked issue in the church, right? It is hard, I will say honestly, it's hard for me, it's hard for everyone. It's hard to glorify God with our bodies if you're living at the all-you-can-eat buffet. You're ordering big gulp, supersizing the combo meal. Gluttony is a real thing. It's a Bible word, which, if anything... It's saying more to something that you should be saying, that's enough too. We've all had those moments. And I'm not being legalistic here. I'm not going to pick on any particular foods. But the old secular adage is a proverbial, which is you are what you eat. And so there are health implications with food and being severely overweight. And the problem for that is food is like a drug. Speaking of which... We need self-control in trying to glorify God in our health care by watching out for substances. Substances. Like alcohol, all right? Let's, let's deal with the elephant in the room. There is not a single verse in the Bible that commands Christians to abstain from alcohol. I kind of wish there were. Why? Because I think the world would be a safer, healthier place if it were so, but that's not the way it is. And I'm thinking because the way human beings consume it. Drunkenness, it goes without, almost goes without saying, is obviously forbidden, and it's a sin. But the Bible, this is where you have to be, again, self-control, wisdom. Because the Bible is full of cautions and warnings about wine, strong drink, as it being potentially destructive, addictive, and mind-altering. You can read it for yourself in Proverbs 20, 31, Ephesians 5. Probably the most clear, direct, to the point we just read it in our BRP just a few weeks ago, probably, is Proverbs 23. It's the most extensive. I'll just give you a couple of highlights there. So you have this in mind. And two things we mentioned are in verse 20. Be not among, meaning don't hang around, drunkards or among gluttonous eaters of meat. Gluttonous eaters. Verse 29. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has strife? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Those who tarry long, that means stay around long, over wine. Those who go to try mixed wine. Verse 33, your eyes will see strange things. Your heart utter perverse things. You will be like one who lies down in the midst of the sea, like one who lies on the top of a mast. You struck me, you will say, but I was not hurt. I think we know people who can relate to that. They beat me, but I did not feel it. When shall I awake? I must have another drink. That's just Bible. That's not me. It's not saying you can't drink. It's saying if you do, 
you better be very, very careful, very cautious if you do, because of the risk of addiction. We know the consequences. Lack of body self-control, DUIs, horrific car wrecks, girls losing their purity, being abused as a result. The problem is because it leads to a loss of inhibitions, of being able to say no, self-control. Alcohol, we know, is America's number one drug choice. But it's not the only one. As you know now, a few states have legalized marijuana use recreationally, just not, not just medicinally, which is understandable in some cases. But marijuana is not mentioned by name in the scriptures. So you're going to run into believers that, oh, I don't know what the Bible says about that. I don't know if that's cool or not. I don't know how to think about that. Well, all they have to do is think in principle about the alcohol cautions, regardless of whether it's legal or not in the state. Listen, let's just face it. Let's be real. People smoke pot recreationally for one reason, basically. It's not for health reasons. It's to get high. It's to be intoxicated. Why else would you? God's people are commanded in contrast by Scripture to be sober or clear-minded. Paul talks about that all the time. So, just ask yourself, will drugs like marijuana help you obey that command? That should be rhetorical, to a sense. Now, on the negative side, the Lord says mind-altering substances lead to a lack of understanding. Hosea 4, Isaiah says lack of judgment. So, again, is that God-glorifying? Don't be swayed by the fact that in Christ you may be free or have liberty to partake in things like alcohol. You do have that liberty as best as we can determine from the scriptures. But God's word also tells us along the line of self-control of the body and stewardship, here's one, never put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. That's in both Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians 8. So be cautious where you're doing it, with whom. It's not a question. Too many Christians are asking the question today, can I do this or that? That shouldn't be the overarching question. Not can I do it. The question should be, should I do it? We're not looking for the freedom there in and of itself. We want to be wise in the stewardship of our bodies. 1 Corinthians 6.12, we're back in the text. All things, Paul said, all things are lawful for me. And what that simply means is all things that are not prohibited explicitly in Scripture are okay for me to do, are lawful for me. But not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. You may have a translation that says, I will not be brought into bondage by anything. That's two words that are synonymous with addiction. Okay? First Corinthians also tells us, we discipline our body enough that we give up liberties in order to lead the lost to Christ and because we love brothers and sisters in the church. In the same letter, chapter 10, verse 23, says, Paul again, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, all things are lawful, but not all things build up, edify. In other words, not all things we do are going to help me grow in faith. So wise, God-glorifying body stewardship means we don't go to extremes, folks. Even in our health care, now let me talk to those that are the super healthy. 
and they go to the gym and work out 24-7, seven days a week, because they want to look really pretty. Well, Paul's got something to say about that, too. The Bible has something to say just about everything, doesn't it? 1 Timothy 4. See, Timothy was a young pastor. I don't know if Timothy was pumping iron or not, but maybe some, pe maybe some people at his church in Ephesus were. And he says in the middle of 1 Timothy 4, 7, he says, rather train yourself. So he's using that analogy. Paul used a lot of sports analogies. Train yourself for godliness, for while bodily training is of some value, yes, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and for the life to come. So there's a priority there. Spiritual growth is more important than muscular growth. We're not to be obsessed with our bodies. Our bodies in healthcare is not just for looking at photos and social media. Your body and its healthcare is for doing something with it, moving, taking action. Because remember, we learned this from David in 2 Samuel. The Lord does not look at the outer man or the outer woman when determining quality of a person. He looks at the heart. And finally, one more. <coughs> we can glorify God with our bodies in death. In death. We can die and we can suffer well for the Lord. Philippians chapter 1 puts it this way in verses 20 and 21. Paul again. He says, it's, I will not be ashamed. I will always in Christ be honored in my body, whether by life or by death, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. So later in this series, we're going to flesh that out. We're going to talk about our bodies, what happens to our bodies at death and in the hereafter. The point is we can suffer and die well for Christ, and that honors and glorifies him. Okay? So in summary here, just note, it's really wonderful how faith in Christ makes a sinner into a new creation, right? Second Corinthians 5, the old have passed away, all things have passed away. Thank you, brother. All things have become new. So it's important that we live, we live as a part of God's new creation in body and soul. Remember who owns you? Remember who you belong to? The Son who redeemed us, the Spirit of God indwells you. We also belong to the people of God, in a sense. That's our church. Because our sins, including the way we treat our bodies, can weaken our testimony, infect the fellowship. Amen? Not just physically, but spiritually. So I close with this thought. There was a guy desperately in need of money in the late 19th century from Sweden. He actually sold the ownership of his body after death to a health institute for dissection purposes, kind of like organ donoring, donoring. 20 years later, he inherits a fortune, and he wants to buy back his contract. Well, I changed my mind. He sued the organization for it. The institute not only successfully defended its position, but requested and was awarded damages for two of the man's teeth, which he dared remove without permission. What does that teach you? You don't really own your bodies, do you? God has the ultimate rights to our body. 
He has ultimate purposes for it. Just remember those two things. So we in this lifetime, till we receive our resurrection bodies, which will be perfect in every way, we are to care for the ones we have as imperfect as they are in this lifetime. And we steward it or manage it for the glory of God. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our word, which again, your word speaks to everything. Everything to do with faith, life, the practice of it. Lord, we are made aware more so today than perhaps we have been in some time that you own us. You own our bodies. You created our bodies for a purpose. And ultimately, we are to make much of you, honor you, magnify you, glorify you with what we do and do not do with the body that you have given us for a period of time on earth before our Lord Jesus returns in his perfected body to give us our perfection in resurrection bodies. I look forward to that day, Lord. For those of us that are hurting physically with affirmities and have struggled with our health, I know some of us even more so in that situation are praying that you would come home sooner than later and restore our bodies as you will restore all of creation. Until then, Lord, help us to be wise, help us to be discerning, sacrificing. Lord, we learn today that we can glorify you in our bodies so many ways, in intimacy, in work, love, health care, even the way we suffer and even in the way we die, Lord God. And for those, Lord God, who are this is all kind of sounds strange to them, your revealed will and your word. May they understand that if they are not Christians, that you have paid a purchase price for those that believe in you. Not only that your bodies would be restored, but that your sins, someone's sins here today would be forgiven. And they would have abundant joy, peace, as well as the hope of glory and the hope of heaven in a perfected body. But to do that, they have to repent and believe in faith. They have to make a decision to turn away from their old sin and selfishness and turn to Christ alone. Believe in Him as the one who is and is coming again. As the one, only Him, who can forgive them of their sins and give them a new life. So I pray that someone's going to do that today. Someone's going to do that listening to this message at some point later, Lord. And maybe ask us to pray with them about it, Lord. So we thank you, Lord, as we move to a time where we honor our dads today, Lord. So many have loved sacrificially and given of themselves, emulating Christ in so many ways. We're so thankful for them, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen. Christ Community Church is a God-glorifying, Christ-exalting, and Bible-centered body of believers who love God and love people by making disciples of Jesus Christ. For more information on us and to learn how to give towards our media ministry, please go to our website at www.christcomchurch.org. That's christcomchurch.org. And look for the Giving tab at the top of the homepage. 